I'm Rebecca, and we are Mama Bear Apologetics. We're just two gals talking about life's big questions from a biblical worldview. Because when it comes to the battle of ideas, we need to be able to say, mess with my kids and I will demolish your arguments. You mess, I demolish. Got it? Capiche? (laughs) (laughs) Rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. This might not affect your faith, but it might affect your children's. Welcome to another episode of Mama Bear Apologetics. I'm Hillary. I'm Rebecca. (laughs) And so today, Rebecca is going to be talking about her absolute most favorite person in the world, which is... Guess who? (laughs) Could it possibly be? I'm like one of those fangirls that it's so obvious. I know. (laughs) I'm looking at you. You're practically blushing. Like, So it's G.K. Chesterton is... um, what would you call it? That's like your historic crush. <laughs> no, I don't have. Crush. How can you have a crush on him? I mean, he was huge, but he's like a. I don't know. He's kind of like the grandfather that I yeah. wish I had had, and I, I I adored my grandfather. That's probably a healthier description. <laughs> yeah, no, really. I mean, oh. <laughs> no, but I. He's like the grandfather that's kind of like the Obi-Wan Kenobi type, right? That, uh, that the, With Luke Skywalker. The, and All wise. The one all that just wise and calming. That speaks to your heart in a way that, yeah. So anyway, the, the quote that Rebecca sent me a, uh, a couple of weeks ago was in regards to a question that I hear very, very often. And that is looking at the God of the Old Testament and saying, why is, how, why is he so different? Or why does he appear so different from the God of the New Testament? Mm-hmm. And so this is one of those classic questions because in the, and there are a lot of ways that the God of the Old Testament does seem like he operates differently than the God of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. But the quote that she found really spoke to her in a way that she said that she's never heard before. So Rebecca, won't you share a little bit about that? Yeah. So one of the things that all of us can really um, recognize is when we read the New Testament and we compare it to the picture of God that we get, the the Father, this you know, that loves the Son and the way and and really Jesus revealed God to us. When we compare mm-hmm. Jesus to the God that we see in some of the Old Testament, it seems like he's changed. And yeah. um but God is not supposed to change. He's the same. And so why would this seem this way and um and and in particular he seems to be very exclusive and he talks about being jealous and and even he comes across as he's belligerent um he (laughs) commands people you shall have no other god but me and he seems like he's really hedging in the nation of israel in this very confining little box and he seems he, he talks about constantly i'm a jealous god you know and and so how do you, you know, we don't, jealousy is bad. I mean, if you're in a relationship with someone like that, you yeah. know, you want to go away from them and get away. So, and some of that could be a translational issue. Like I know that there's certain words that we only have mm. one word for it when there's really kind of other words from the original. Like I think I was yes. reading something from, uh, who was it? Uh, Alyssa Childers on her blog oh, okay. about slavery. And it was talking about how the Hebrew word for slave and our word for slave are kind of different, but our word, we only have one word versus what they have, mm-hmm. the, the connotation, which that's a whole other podcast. But so just the concept of jealousy, we sort of put that in our own interpretation of what does jealous look like from our culture and not necessarily what is the historic definition. And I think whenever you find something in scripture where it hangs on a single word that seems really contentious, con- eh, 
Goodness. Well, we'll go with that. It's not, it's not the word I'm thinking. Controversial, controversial is the word I was looking okay, for. Yeah. Whenever it hangs on a single word that's controversial, you should probably start looking into the original language. And I would say jealous would be one of those for yeah. the Old Testament. No, that's wonderful. So there's, there's levels of context that we have to be sure we're not reading our cultural, linguistic, historical context back into the original meaning of the text mm-hmm. and what was actually really going on. Yeah. So I'm reading The Everlasting Man by Chesterton, and this is um, a book that C.S. Lewis read when he was an atheist, and he said that it baptized his intellect before he became a Christian. So it's like, Ooh, he, and he, he said George MacDonald baptized his imagination before he became a Christian. Was, what did George MacDonald write? I'm trying, like, I know that name, but all of a sudden I'm drawing a blank. I'm thinking... 1984, but I know that's not him. Um, he's famous for Lilith and um, Fantasties and mm-hmm. the At the Back of the North Wind. That's the one that I've read. And then yeah. he, was a, he was a Scottish um, uh, preacher and um, minister in the mid-1800s. And okay. so, and he actually wrote a lot treatises like on imagination and on reason and such as that. And then he was just, he wrote these incredible sermons that were just beautiful. I mean, it was poetic as well. I think that makes sense why I'm so drawn to C.S. Lewis, because I think he has such a strong left and right brain. He would say yes. He said that for him, he had the reason in the imagination and in the atheistic worldview that he had, they were necessarily bifurcated and divided. And he has a great poem, I think it's called Reason, and it talks about who is going to unite these two, my reason and my imagination. And actually, this it. is a great segue into what Chesterton, Chesterton is talking about in The Everlasting Man. Okay. So what um, I wrote this down, what, what he's doing in The Everlasting Man in general, and so this is, C.S. Lewis called this the best apologetic work of the 20th century. Wow, if Lewis said that, I, w- I would stand up and take notice because... Well, and of the twi- of, 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 of his time in the 20th century. Of his time, and, of course, yeah. Well, yeah, obviously. And he actually, actually, he may have, you know, <laughs> surpassed him <laughs> in some people's I think minds. Lewis is kind of like my Chesterton. When I read Lewis, I feel like there's things inside my heart that are just stirred, like this guy understands me. And I, whenever I hear you talk about Chesterton, I get this feeling that it's the same way for you. Yeah, and Lewis is the same way for me as well, actually. And mm-hmm. what's really amazing is when I... So Lewis really stirs my heart. And then when I read Chesterton, I see Chesterton's influence on Lewis and mm. Tolkien as well. And, and, Chester, and Lewis said that. He's like, I, he was someone when I read him, I so absorbed him that I would r- quote him and not even realizing I was quoting mm. him. So in The Everlasting Man, Chesterton sweeps across human history with lightning speed, relatively speaking, to show <laughs> how history has been working towards the event basically the incarnation and death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. Beginning his chronological journey with our earliest known artifacts of prehistoric man, cave art, along the way tearing down stronghold after stronghold in modern thoughts about the people's cultures and beliefs of antiquity. So he really reveals the fact that we in the modern world look back on ancients with a very narrow lens and we don't, we're really judging them by really the box of materialistic naturalism. Yeah. And we don't see the full picture. Because he said the first artifacts we have from what people call the brutal cavemen were actually drawings 
of animals. And when you look mm. at the drawings, there actually shows a lot of artistic sensitivity. This is a fully developed artistic person. He said, okay, yeah, maybe he beat his wife over the head and drug her off by the hair. He's like, we <laughs> don't have any ancient divorce reports to show this. <laughs> I don't know where we get this from. But there's a lot of assumptions and a lot of assumptions come from really Darwinian Dar Darwinianism. And he yeah. actually distinguishes between Darwin's Darwinianism, which he said was actually had kind of a healthy agnosticism to it, mm -hmm. and the dogmatic Darwinianism. Uh, yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Yeah, of his people that promote him today. And, and so they look back on this idea that we start from barbarism and progressively move toward greater civilization. But he says, when the curtain, you know, draws, it opens on human history, we get our first recorded history. The two cultures that we see are ancient Babylon and ancient Egypt, and they're highly civilized and advanced cultures. Mm -hmm. So at prehistory, he thinks that, you know, prehistory wasn't this idea of this barbaric caveman. Now he said that could be the truth, that could be it, you know, if we evolve from apes, but we just don't know, we go too far. So he encourages us to look back on history with a greater openness. So what does that have to do with uh, the God of the Old Testament? Okay, so part of it is really trying to understand ancient polytheism. Because he said there was this, and he really, in Everlasting Man, there was a book, I think it was written by Huxley, I think it was Huxley, that tried okay. to show the evolution of religion. And he's mm. taking Darwinian ideas of taking from simpler, and more barbaric to greater, more complex. And so they think the polytheism was natural and it eventually evolved into this great monotheistic religion of the Jews and, and on and what we have today. And so they think there has been an evolution. And Chesterton is actually saying, actually, if you go back and you look at the pagan cultures, even the barbarians today that we have, we go to these, we, we call them barbarians, but these unreached tribes, they okay. may worship a lot of gods, but when you get to the heart of it, they keep the idea of the one God, the Father, above all of them. They keep that idea. It's still there. It's kind of a chief God idea. Like a, chief a chief God, God. But, they don't, but they don't talk about it. They're strangely mm -hmm. silent about it. And one of the reasons why Chesterton thinks that they are and that they were is that this one God overall was too big to hold. And so in a way, it, 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 it's kind of when Paul says that, you know, there is a God in whom we live and move and find our being. He's ever present. And Chesterton likens him to the blue sky or to the sky above us. It's bearing down on us. He's so big. We can't control it. And yeah. it's easier to kind of just set him aside, especially if he's making moral demands of us. So <laughs> polytheism is actually a compromise. And, and then also he says polytheism, when you look at the ancient polytheism, it was also kind of like a form of ancient relativism where all these cultures were living side by side and they were trying to get along. And so instead of, you know, my God is better than your God, they said, well, you just come on in. It's kind of like the Hindus of today who are like, oh, just we'll add your God to our pantheon. Hmm. And that, that sounds a little bit like what America's doing right now with the, the whole tolerance thing. I think that that is a natural human tendency because we are social creatures that want mm -hmm. to get along. 
And when you have this God that's saying, no, I am the only God and I'm the greatest God and I have, this is what goodness consists of, it really does set you apart. And the evidence that Chesterton gives of this kind of God sets people apart are the Jews. Mm. No one, and, and countless historians and philosophers and thinkers throughout the ages have noted, even Plays Pascal did, you've got to explain the Jews. How did they stay, even though they weren't just localized in one place, they were dispersed, yet they maintained yeah. their culture in a way that no other cultures have. Yeah. It's very unique. They were a nomadic people that did not blend and it created a lot of problems. So kind of what you're saying is there is, it's almost like um, ideological entropy, where it kind of has a, just as just historically cultures have a tendency to go towards polytheism in some way because it's less (laughs) controversial Mm -hmm. uh, to just keep including rather than to exclude. And so the fact that you have a people group that are choosing to do this on their own, Mm -hmm. just like any, so entropy is the idea that things go from order to disorder. Mm -hmm. If any of you have kids, the second you clean your house, especially young kids, good grief, you clean your house and then you come back five minutes later and there's like spaghetti on the walls and you're like, didn't I just clean this? That would be the concept of entropy. In order to get it back to a state of order, you have to put in a lot of work to mm-hmm. make that happen. Same thing for if you have, you know, a teenager in their bedroom. They could be clean one minute and as soon as that girl realizes she needs a dress for a party, you're going to come back and the entire closet mm-hmm. is everywhere in the bedroom. So that's kind of like what's happening religiously is it is almost non-instinctual to start out with one God because the tendency is to always keep adding because it creates less strife and less stress and less conflict. And less demand. Uh, yeah, and except for this one group that somehow managed, even though they were dispersed throughout all these different countries, to keep a cultural identity and not go in the way that would be natural. That right there is evidence that there has to be some sort of outside force that has come in that has been an organizing force to mm-hmm. keep that kind of entropy from occurring. I love that. That's perfect. So it things tend to, like, like when you add a cold solution to a warm solution, the cold immediately will disperse and, mm-hmm. and, and spread out. Um, gases do the same. They immediately spread out. It's kind of the way things work to from less order to, to greater disorder mm-hmm. and you can certainly say that polytheism <laughs> a lot of disorder <laughs> yeah yeah you know why wouldn't we stick with it monotheism in some ways is easier but it's bigger and it's less yeah. actually there's less to control mm-hmm. i mean it's harder to control so what yeah. this is a, a quote that that chesterton um, has in this book he said is often said with a sneer that the god of israel was only a god of battles a mere barbaric lord of hosts pitted in rivalry against other gods only as their envious foe mm. and so a lot of people say well why why was he like that well the popular answer is that that I was told, you know, it, God was trying to preserve the uniqueness of this nation that was mm-hmm. going to bring the gospel eventually to the world through mm-hmm. Christ. Yeah, he was trying, and, and he was also trying to keep the holiness of Israel. But when, and that's what you hear from many apologists. But this answer seems thin. Chesterton gives this answer 
in a richer and fuller form by summarizing both paganism and the cultural context of biblical times. And, and one of the things he points out is that when we go about the science, the current popular science of comparative religion, we go about mm-hmm. it all wrong. He said, we put the world's great religions in parallel columns until we fancy they are really parallel. We are so accustomed to see the names of the great religious founders in a row, Christ, Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius. But in truth, this is only a trick. Another one of these optical illusions by which objects may be put into a particular relation by shifting a particular point of sight. And Hmm. he goes on to say that they're actually very, very different. He said to compare Christianity and Confucianism is like comparing a theist with an English squire or asking asking whether a man is a believer in immortality or 100% American. He said, Confucianism may be a civilization, but is not a religion. And actually, what he says about Confucianism is that it was really, Confucius was a community organizer, and he was a really good one. Mm-hmm. Um, he yeah. said, instead of dividing religion geographically and, as it were, vertically into Christian, Muslim, Brahmin, Buddhist, Buddhist, and so on, I would divide it psychologically. And instead and in some sense horizontally, into the strata of spiritual elements and influences that could sometimes exist in the same country or even in the same man. He, okay, say, say that last part again, because uh, I didn't quite catch all of that. Like, ex- explain that last part about uh, dividing things psychologically. So, spiritual elements and influences that could sometimes exist in the same country or even in the same man. And really what I think he's speaking to is internal needs that we have. And what he's gonna, what he divides them into is he divides them into God, the categories. We have God, which is monotheism, the gods, polytheism, the demons, and philosophers. <laughs> so God is the monotheism that was too big to hold. The mm-hmm. gods was the polytheism and the paganism that answered our need for ritual and our okay. need to pass the time. And, I, and he has a really good quote about this. He said, paganism satisfies the needs by a religion and notably the need for doing certain things at certain dates, the need mm-hmm. of the twin ideas of festivity and formality. So that's kind of like talking about how we have an inherent need for structure and maybe yeah. that what that's what he's saying is this imposed liturgy. kind of structure. Yes. Liturgy. Yes. <laughs> and and, think about and that. we fall into liturgy even if we're non-believers. We mm-hmm. fall into liturgy. We they provide man with a calendar, a way to cope with being a temporal being. To to way <laughs> being we have time and we have to pass the time. They provide him paganism provides man with a calendar, but they do not provide him with a creed. And he said, mm. You don't see people dying for Jupiter, but they die mm. for God. Yeah. Um and so the other things are the demons. He said the demons come in when and he said he notes that demons appear that and he said the particular mark of demonology is child sacrifice oh, when you see that's interesting child sacrifice in these ancient cultures so we have it in the phoenicians that the mm-hmm. um the ancient israelites were dealing with you also have in carthage which is in that northern part of africa and yeah. rome pagan rome yep. is going to actually fight carthage and the, the thing that just uh, that they abhor in Carthage, even though they're pagans and they're not believers in any way, they're going to mm-hmm. abhor the child sacrifice. And that's what you see with the Canaanites as well. That child sacrifice was very entrenched yeah. in their 
culture and it actually affected trade relations with with other countries around them because the other countries that found that like you said abhorrent wouldn't they they allowed this practice to actually hinder and if you look and if you look at the um the cultures themselves they weren't barbaric they were Mm -hmm. highly civilized they had trade they had business they had education they were some of the best the world's best traders they were kind of like wall street in a way for the ancient world he said what he thinks in human psychology going back to that human psychology why does man decide to consort with demons why well because when you get men in that very successful civilized state they become very utilitarian and there's Mm -hmm. a sense that the demons get stuff done you can go to the demons and they're not going to demand stuff of you actually (laughs) they will demand stuff of you just not immediately they will demand you do things that are anti-nature Oh, and that's, that's the good. key to demonology. Demonology is always going to be anti-nature. And it's a trade for uh, of power for something that's anti-nature, especially in the form of child sacrifice. We talked about this a little bit. That uh, how so we were talking a little bit about this, Rebecca, about how some of the demonology is almost like demons were able to figure out what's that? What's that psychological term? Classical conditioning <laughs> before oh before we ever did. It's this yeah. idea of people recognized, oh, if I do this specific thing, then the crops are better. Or if I do that specific thing, then I have a good day at the market. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to be looking at this from a spiritual context, that there is a possibility that doing these rituals or or doing these demonic kind of activities, they actually are getting the results that they're desiring. And it's not because what they're doing is magical. It's because there is a demonic influence that says, we can get them hooked into looking over here instead of God. Well, and, and the, what I love about Chesterton is that he looks at things and can see the subtleties. And he actually divides this idea. He talks about this idea of superstitions, right? He mm-hmm. says, you actually, he said, he, he gives an anecdote about being in a, at a dinner with everyone else was an atheist in the room. And he was talking about superstitions. And the great Englishman, uh, Dr. Johnson, Samuel Johnson, I guess, had this tendency, mm-hmm. this kind of obsessive behavior. He always had to touch all the lampposts <laughs> on his street. I didn't know this. We just call that obsessive compulsive now. Yes, but it was this sort of thing like if he felt like if he could, didn't do it, there's something's going wrong. He said, inherent in that is this recognition that we're not in control. And that we live in a universe that seems, from our perspective, to be somewhat arbitrary Mm -hmm. um, and random. And he says he's sitting at this dinner with all these people that are not Christians and they're antagonistic to Christianity, but they're friends. And and they all pull out some little, like, thing that's their good luck piece. He said, I... a little rabbit foot. He's like, I was actually the only one in the room that didn't have one. (laughs) <laughs> but, well, I think back to those old beer commercials um, that I think it was, it was either Budweiser or Coors where it was the tagline was, uh, it's only weird if it doesn't work. <laughs> Do you remember that? No, I don't. No. It had them, it, it just had these bizarre rituals because you'll see this, you'll see this in sports, but you'll especially see this in baseball. Oh, you see it in baseball. ballet. The dancers oh, have really? certain routines that they go through before they go on stage. And I understand that. Yeah. yeah. Working as a past athletic trainer, I can verify that the baseball players are more superstitious <laughs> than almost. You'll have guys that won't wash certain socks for like 
weeks on end because they're they their good luck socks. <laughs> yeah, well, they haven't lost a game as long as they wear these socks. And so, you know, this the stuff seems kind of harmless when we're joking about it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if you are a spiritual being and you're seeing people's behavior, how how quickly do you think it's going to be told, you know, the demons can sit there and nudge each other and say, hey, we can capitalize on this. Yeah, you do this and you'll get this. Mm-hmm. And and we can get them to do some bad stuff, some yeah. really bad stuff. Yeah, so Chesterton is good at pointing out that part of that is natural because yeah. it's a recognition that we are not in control. And mm-hmm. so part of it is innocent. And it's going to come out of people that are definitely pagan. You know, they're going to definitely have that. And, and he notes that the Jewish people were always tempted in falling into that. They were always wanted, wanting to fall into this polytheism. And it's all over the, yeah. the, the, the Old Testament. And that's actually a, a question that I've heard from kids, and especially one of my nephews has asked that. He doesn't understand the idea of, like, why did they keep wanting to worship these idols? And he had a, a little friend. It was so sweet. A little friend that he discovered wasn't a Christian. He was asking his mom, do you think they have any idols? And, her, you know, his, his mom's sitting there laughing, going, sweetie, I, I promise I don't think they have any idols. But we just look at this. We do kind of have this idol of polytheism, and that's just like this god of tolerance mm-hmm. that we have adopted. And And one of the things when... Chesterton was talking about monotheism was too big to hold. It, it was as big as the sky and as big as the heavens bearing down on us. It was like yeah. so obvious. I liken it to when you live close to a highway or a busy street, eventually you learn to tune out that street noise because mm-hmm. it bothers you. Well, yeah. a monotheistic God that is a father and that, that would possibly have moral demands on us is someone we, we, we want to forget. And we even do this, right? I mean, we just go about our day lives and get so wrapped up in ourselves. It's easy. It's very easy to forget God. Even as Christians, we can do it. So yeah. it's just a tendency that we have. And I think part of it is just that we're so we're finite and we're fallen. And um, so in the pagans, of course, and God was not giving them special revelation. He had taken this one little nation. And now I, I always wondered, why did he take just one tiny little nation? And I think it was because he knew our nature and anything bigger, just it's not going to work. It's <laughs> not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Kind of like how, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, Jay Warner Wallace always says the most successful com- conspiracies are the ones that have <laughs> conspiracy of one. Yeah, That's really the best it. possible thing. And so it's like just one nation having this, having this information. It, it was for a non-coercive God to, to, mm-hmm. to work within a people Either the smaller, the better. <laughs> because he's non-coercive. He's not going to force them. But that would account for his apparent jealousy and maybe even his apparent, you know, battling because it it was just he had to preserve this yeah. these people that were going to carry forward. And, and, and Chesterton says we have the Jews to thank for our yeah. for God, because yeah. without them, we would not have, you know, Jesus would have you know, because he was in obscurity. He was just a Bronze Age carpenter. He would have lived and died in obscurity and and it wouldn't have had all this revelation and all these things that we can look back to and see a consistency throughout, you know, human yeah. history. So let me put some of these ideas, um, see if I can put them together in my head. We have a God of the Old Testament that seems very, very jealous. And I would compare that to I think every parent has had the experience where if we're going to go back to the idea of going from order to disorder, 
there's some times when you can kind of let things run amok and then there's other times when you have company that you know is coming over and the house is clean right now and you are a lot harsher on your kids saying you better not make a mess because we have company coming over that that almost sounds like the guy of the old testament who knew jesus is coming we need to make way for him I'm going to be a jealous God and I'm going to make sure that this does not descend into disorder during this period of time because Mm -hmm. Jesus has not come yet. And he works within human history. They did not have the Holy Spirit communing with them back then Mm -hmm. like we do now. And so would Mm -hmm. you say that maybe that's one of the reasons why we don't see that same nature now because he has, we have open communication with God now through Jesus, through the death and resurrection. And now that community with the Holy Spirit that he can speak to us in a variety of ways now, as opposed to, I have to preserve this with just this historic people back then. I think that's perfect. And actually, it reminds me of what we've been talking about lately, about the idea of when we did our Jonathan Edwards, when we're less immature in a certain area, we tend to be very black and white thinkers. Well, you could say mm. the whole, all of mankind was at a very spiritually immature point in a sense, as far as revelation, because it was going to be this progressive revelation because God had to prepare a nation that was going to be the vehicle of of this God-man, Jesus, coming into the world. And this nation had to be the right, they had to carry this message you know, mm-hmm. and and um and, and, and produce a Mary, you know, produce a Joseph yeah. And, yeah. and and those people that were gonna be and a and a John the Baptist, the people that were gonna be faithful. Yeah. And um what was gonna do that? And this is this is what God had to do. It's still yes, there are certain things, you know, um instances of when God telling to wipe out like the Malachites and, and whatnot. Um, atheists want to make you think that it's like on every other page of the Old Testament. It's not, yeah. but it's still enough. It's disturbing, and certainly we have you know the Levitical law that some of it is just very like you don't not it's really don't understand some of it. It seems very harsh. I usually don't encourage new believers to read through the Old Testament for a while. <laughs> well, and so I think this goes back to your idea of this being you know black and white and God having to work mm-hmm. with people where they are. And communicate yeah. to them in a way that they will understand. Yeah. And that's actually something that I see atheists a lot that they they have this really judgmental idea of the way God should have interacted and that he should have imposed the perfect the perfect way that they should be from the very beginning, just completely discon not taking into account what the culture actually was. I've at thought that, time that myself before. I've questioned that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh-huh. And and so it's the idea that if we are talking about a God who isn't coerced, if we are talking about a God who isn't overbearing, that he does have to work with the culture as they are to bring them out. When you're leading, some, sometimes when you're leading someone out, for, for example, I'll say like uh, sometimes I've seen either personal trainers or athletic trainers trying to get someone who is really, really struggling with an exercise and they'll say just five more, just five more. Uh-huh. Instead of giving them the entire exercise routine all at once, yeah. they're, they're saying, okay, just five more of these. And that's essentially what God is doing because he's not saying, this is the perfect society that I want you to be. Here it is, here it is all, blah, and just vomit that on them. <laughs> yeah. He's telling them, okay, just a little bit further this way, just a little bit further this way. This is how you should treat people here. This is how you should treat people here. You know, and, and people will take those kind of baby steps as saying that was God's ideal instead of saying this is God leading them out of maybe 
the depravity and the depths of sin that they had already gotten themselves into. Yeah, being a gentle shepherd that um, is is gradually corralling the sheep. And, and, and one of the things that is so amazing about what Chesterton is doing in Everlasting Man, and something that a lot of kids will ask today, and, and a lot of atheists ask, and I asked at one point, okay, why was God just focusing on this nation of Israel when all these other people were just dying in their sin and ignorance outside? Well, God was doing something with the pagans and with the philosophers. And he was, in a way, baptizing the pagan imagination and (laughs) baptizing the philosopher intellects. And they were all working together toward what Chesterton calls his fullness of time when the pagans, the prophets, and the philosophers were all ready. For Christ oh, to come. That's beautiful. It's beautiful. And he says, he talks about, he has uses beautiful language, how they meet in a cross. And mm. it's just, it's gorgeous. But one of the things that is fascinating is when he talks about the pagan mythologies, when you look at them, he says, the pagans didn't take them seriously, not as seriously as we take religion today. Mm. It was the poet side of man that created the mythologies. Mm. And of course, there was also the control part where they were wanting to control. That's always going to be the sin. There's always going to be the marble in the mud. But it was the poetic side of man looking at nature and divining what God is like from it. And they were seeing death, burial, resurrection, new life in in the plant life and other things. So it's no surprise that some of their mythologies would, would get close would be dim shadows of Christ. Mm. And this is a great answer for the mythicists today. Yeah. yeah. And, and that, in a sense, kind of shows you that it, it talks about how we are to, I, I, I love the part in where Jesus says, consider the lilies of the field. And it talks about how the heavens declare the glory of God in, back in the Psalms and uh, in Romans, it talks about what can be known about God is plain to them for he's made it plain to them mm-hmm. through creation. And so and we he's written it. At, and when the pagans do things according to the law, it proves that God has written the law on their mm-hmm. hearts. Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. they are seeing almost a prophecy of Christ in just the seasonal nature mm-hmm. of things of, like you said, the death, and kind of resurrection in spring, that there is this. And what's a really cool thing about C.S. Lewis is that you talked about how C.S. Lewis speaks to you because he has the reason and the imagination. (laughs) And for what united them for him was Christianity. Well, what the Mm. argument that Chesterton is making is that you had the philosophers with just the blank abstract reason. Then you had the the pagans with their imagination and very concrete, real earthiness. Christianity came along and united them, just yeah. like it did for Christ for for C.S. Lewis. Christ was yeah. the the one that reconciled the two of these two streams. And and Chesterton talks about the philosophers and the pagans. They were running parallel to each other. They were never going to be united. They would mm. never cross paths. And he, say, he talks about how the philosophers just disdained the pagans. And, and typically philosophers were the aristocrats because they had the time to sit around and think. <laughs> and, and it's so much like today because you have the intelligentsia and how you know we can look down on the, the average common man. But there is a wisdom in the common man too and in democracy. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, can, you can draw all kinds of parallels and Chesterton does and he blows yeah. your mind and wears you out. <laughs> Yeah, so just bringing it kind of back again, when people look at the God of the Old Testament and they say, why does he seem so different than the God of the New Testament? Why does he seem so jealous? Why is he having them wipe out different uh, different people groups or, or just a lot of odd rules? 
that we can look at this from a psychological standpoint, that we have cultures that are going from order to disorder, and the order being the thing that you have to maintain would be the monotheism, mm -hmm. and the disorder being basically what things dissolve into. Naturally. Mm -hmm. Naturally. And we can see it in our own hearts, if we're oh, honest. Oh, yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. We can see it in our own hearts. And so you have God having to maintain, because he does not have Christ here yet, and he doesn't have access through the Holy Spirit yet. He has not been reunited with man. Redemption has not occurred. And so he has to keep this one people group isolated in some ways from the rest of the culture. And he's constantly pulling them back from dissolving into the rest of the surroundings. And so we have to recognize when it seems like he's different at that time, it's almost as different as when you're a parent over a child when they live at home with you when they're, say, in elementary school versus a parent of a child who has gone away to college. That yeah. there's a certain amount that you – it's like I hear it all the time where people talk about, oh – the parents that, you know, the grandparents that my kids have are completely different than the parents I had. They're the same person, yeah. but there's different responsibilities at yeah. those times. And the responsibility, mm -hmm. yeah, the responsibility that God had to the people of Israel for maintaining them, their identity is different. They're the responsibility that he has now that we have access to the Holy Spirit, that we have access to scripture and we have access to Jesus. So that would be maybe a way to explain to your kids why the God of Old Testament seems different than God of the New Testament. It's the same God. The the, the nation of Israel cre carried a great burden for us. And yeah. I think that's one reason why we believe that God has something special for them. And But they carried a great burden, and also they were, they've always been a huge target throughout human history, even by Christian that's cultures. That's absolutely true. That haven't been, mm -hmm. been, been acting very righteously. Absolutely. So, well, I think that'll be... That'll be it for today. Thank you so much, Rebecca. That was really enlightening. I love how you always have so many good quotes. And <laughs> I don't know. I can always count on you for a better memory on that stuff than I, than I have. Um, so I'll just, I'll just pray us out then. Sounds good. <sighs> Father God, we thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, Lord. Um, and we thank you, God, that you don't... No, I changed that, Lord. We thank you that you deal with us as we are <laughs> and not as you wish we were or not as the ideal version that you see us becoming, Lord. And we see that throughout history, God, that you are a God who has been that gentle shepherd to lead people out of where they are. Father God, in the same grace that you gave in people in the Old Testament of, of leading them out of uh, some of the ways that are more sinful, you show us the same grace, Lord, to lead us out from where we are, Lord. Because if you were to reveal everything that was wrong with us all in one fell swoop, we would just, we would be crushed by the weight yes. of it, Lord. Mm -hmm. And Lord God, we just want to pray a special blessing over Israel, mm -hmm. God, and uh, just the Jews, Lord, knowing that they really did carry such a burden for us in the past, Lord, and that you you call them your chosen people. And since you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, we are going to assume, Lord, that they are still your chosen people. And we have been grafted in with them, Lord. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just pray protection and a special blessing um, over Israel, Lord Jesus, knowing because I love you, Lord, and I want to love the things that you love, and you love Israel, and you value Israel, Lord. Mm -hmm. And we just want to speak that openly uh, as mama bears here, Lord, that we support Israel. Um, I didn't think I didn't mean to go into political like that, Lord. But at the same time, I do want to, I do want to reflect your heart in every single uh, bit that we do with Mama Bear, Lord. 
We thank you for being our God, and we thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit and for giving us Jesus, Lord, and allowing us to commune with you and providing us with redemption um, so that we can just mature in our relationship with you, Lord. You are so good. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. This has been a Mama Bear Apologetics recording. To learn more about Mama Bear Apologetics, please visit us on the web at www.mamabearapologetics.com. Have you been stumped by your kids already? Or maybe you have a nagging question of your own that you think would make a good podcast. Send us an email to askthemamabears at gmail.com and we will do our best. Rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. We are all in this together.